Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking the migraine brain with Dr. Ira Turner. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 111 of the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest, Dr. Ira Turner, a neurologist specializing in migraines. Dr. Turner is one of the founding partners of Island Neurological Associates in Plainview, New York, formerly the chief of the Division of Neurology at Plainview Hospital. In 2000, Dr. Turner started the Center for Headache Care and Research at Island Neurological Associates, where his research studies included multiple clinical trials on the treatment for episodic and chronic migraines, as well as the use of Botox for specific types of migraines, in which we'll get into some of that today. And we're also going to talk about different lifestyle factors and what the migraine brain likes and doesn't like. So without further ado, let's get into it. Dr. Ira Turner, welcome to the Eat Right Podcast. Well, thanks, Doran. Uh, where would you like to start? I think I just want to start with what is a migraine? Fantastic. Well, migraines are widely misunderstood and underdiagnosed condition. And uh, people uh, don't realize how disabling it is. As a matter of fact, some statistics that were uh, brought up by the uh, World Health Organization about two years ago, showed that migraine is not only underdiagnosed, but underappreciated as a cause of disability. It is only exceeded by low back pain as a cause of disability over people's lifetimes. Um, and you know that doesn't mean that somebody who's had a stroke or a heart attack is a more disabled, but that's over a shorter period of time. It's not over an entire lifetime. And that's what's uh, you know, so depressing about the underdiagnosis of migraine. There are a lot of people out there suffering. Now, what is a migraine? A migraine is more than a headache, okay? Uh, headache is, of course, a feature of migraine. But you can even have a migraine without a headache. Uh, you could just have some of the other associated symptoms. But typically, a migraine headache is a throbbing headache, but not necessarily. So it could be a squeezing headache as well. It could be on one side of the head or both sides of the head. And it's commonly associated with other very unpleasant symptoms like nausea, vomiting, sensitivity to light and noise. And many people during an attack also feel like you know their brain is kind of mushy. They can't think clearly. So it's a very disabling condition. Now, having mentioned, having said that, there are many other features of migraine that are really important. For example, you've probably heard of a migraine aura. This is the most commonly visual, but it could be another sensory aura or language disturbance that can last five to 60 minutes and typically precedes the onset of the headache. But only about 25% of migraine patients will describe having an aura, and they may not have it with every, every attack. What's even more common than a migraine aura, what we call prodromal or premonitory symptoms, which to me are extremely interesting and they're a tremendous area that, where more research needs to be done. These can occur anywhere from a few hours to even a day or two before the actual attack. And many of these symptoms suggest that there's something going on in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. 
Uh, these include, for example, excessive yawning. I used to get that when I was much younger and had frequent migraines. I would yawn for hours before the actual headache began. And I didn't know enough back then to realize that that was my premonitory or prodromal symptom. Other people get urgings for certain foods and they can be incredibly intense urgings. And you know what the most common one is? Most common ones for chocolate. And that's why so many people who think that chocolate triggers their out their attacks and sometimes it is a true trigger but i found you know just based on my experience that more commonly it's a urging is a premonitory symptom uh and um what i would try to get patients to do very commonly is to um fight it don't have the chocolate see if the migraine still occurs and you know the majority of them they would still get their migraine attack you know, and, you know, chocolate is just one example. And other people, it could be for cheese. Other people, it could be for ice cream. It could be, there's a variety of things, pickles. I mean, they can, they can be really, uh, you know, very unusual uh, ones. Other people uh, very often get this feeling of depression or the opposite, euphoria for hours or even a day or two before the attack occurs. And what's also interesting is that many migraine patients may have a postrome that occurs after the headache actually resolves. And some of the common ones are what, similar to what I just mentioned, uh, depression, euphoria, uh, urging for certain foods, yawning, very similar to what we saw in the, in the premonitory or prodromal phase. And this all suggests that there's something going on in a part of the brain called the hypothalamus, which is one of the areas of the brain that's really, really important. Uh, in the whole uh, modulation and even propagation of the uh, of the migraine process, and it's also you know the hypothalamus, as I'm sure you're aware, is very important in many of our physiological functions like sleep, like eating. It controls much of the autonomic nervous system uh, that affects heart rate, that affects breathing rate, and things like that. So all of these things play a role, and that's why migraine is so disabling. I want to go back to the the chocolate thing. Sure. Because yes. from my experience, women tend to <laughs> yep. crave crave chocolate more than men do. Is there a well, connection? Women also have more migraine than men. Well, it's, so that's what I was going to ask you is, is it more prevalent amongst women than it is men? Yes, about about a three to one ratio. 18% of women and 6% of, of men have migraine. And those are very conservative numbers. But what's really interesting about these numbers, if you look at women in a particular age group between 20 and 50, what sometimes people refer to as people's most productive years, which I take offense at now. Uh, <laughs> but uh, they, you know, women may have about 26 to 27 percent of women in that age group, you know, have migraine. So that's a big, yeah, that's a large yeah, number. It really is. And that's yeah. why, you know, that's why it's, it's thought of as a women's disease. And uh, in fact, to a large extent, it is, but men get it also. Women just get it more frequently because the way I look at it, more because of hormonal fluctuations and the change in hormonal levels, particularly premenstrually. As I think we had talked about this previously, uh, that uh, change is a big, you know, is a big trigger uh, for migraine. And particularly if you stack triggers one upon another, like pre, the premenstrual uh, days, uh, weather change, uh, skipping meals, so you're changing your diet, change in sleep patterns, somebody stays awake all night, change in stress, 
people have an increase in stress levels or a decrease in stress levels. You, you stack with these all one on top of another. And many of these things, by the way, again, getting back to the hypothalamus are things that affect the hypothalamus. Okay, so that's why we're, we're so interested in this part of the brain as at least an area that modulates the migraine uh, process and may be important in the generation of the migraine process. So I want to talk about a couple of things. And I know Nicole's going to probably want to jump in with the uh, the female cycle, mm -hmm. as always, because that's where Nicole thrives. But <laughs> the you thrive in your cycle. Just I kidding. thrive in my cycle. But, that's good to know. <laughs> but, but the uh, the sleep, right? Circadian rhythm. If you throw off your circadian rhythm, how does that affect a migraine from a lifestyle uh, standpoint? Well, you know, one, one of the things that, that we learned a long, long time ago is that one of the best ways to reduce migraine frequency is for people to have regular habits and perhaps mm -hmm. sleep and diet are the two most important ones and throw mm -hmm. in exercise. And then you've got the three things that are probably most important for general health. And all of these things are things that have an effect on the part of the brain called the hypothalamus. Well, I was just going to say those are also from a lifestyle standpoint, but when you talk about the female cycle, those are also many of the things that help regulate the female cycle. So right. if I'm careful about my food intake and I'm eating my eating frequency, my sleep, my stress levels, like you talked about stacking um, habits, essentially, if I'm careful and pay attention to that, my migraines are almost non-existent. When I'm not careful, they come, they come on full force. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's, that, that's really very common. You may even want to throw in exercise. I know you guys are really into yes. exercise like mm -hmm. it, and we all should be, but regular exercise, regular diet, these are things that are really important. There's a lot of interesting data now showing that increased body weight, increased body mass index in particular, uh, especially in women correlates with increased migraine frequency. Interesting. Uh, now, why is that? You know, I, I, I always, you know, traditionally thought of fat as an inert tissue. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's just there. You don't like it. It's in the way, but <laughs> it didn't do very much for you. But in fact, and I only found this out maybe within the last 10 years, fat is pro-inflammatory. Mm -hmm. And anything that's pro-inflammatory in somebody who has a migraine brain, it just makes it easier. And there are now uh, at least two really well-done studies showing uh, that not only does increased weight increase migraine frequency, but reducing weight, either mm. through bariatric surgery or through a really intense uh, diet co uh, coupled with exercise, reduces migraine frequency. Well, we talk a lot about a lot of uh, met metabolic disturbances when it right. comes to increased BMI, right? You have an, you have it's pro-inflammatory. You have an increased risk for cancer too. Sure. Uh, you've got an increased risk for leptin resistance, which will affect you, and insulin resistance, and all these things, especially with upper body uh, obesity. So, like, you know, in general, it just seems like it is a good idea to, for lack of better terms, be less fat. Yeah, absolutely. And you get the bonus of having fewer migraines, at least <laughs> it, not, you know, you can never guarantee anything for an individual, just like with drug therapy, you can never, mm -hmm. you know, guarantee any one treatment's going to work, but in a population reducing BMI will help uh, to uh, reduce migraine frequency. As long as you don't go too far, because a very low BMI is also a risk factor for increased, uh, for, for increased migraine frequency. 
speaking of, do you know if we have data on different cohorts, like different countries in terms of migraine frequency, like in the US being more obese versus another country? Yeah, I, I, I'm i not sure that there's any accurate data on that, at least nothing that I'm familiar with. You know, I, I do speak with my European colleagues, you know, periodically and, and hear the same thing from them that, that, that we that we talk about. Uh you know, I, I have not um, had that many conversations with our Asians or Latin American colleagues that, uh, on this topic, but certainly with our European colleagues, uh, you know, they, they have very similar concerns about weight. I was just going to say, going back to what you said about going too far for some of our leaner, more fit females, at least for my experience in my client caseload, my super lean, super fit chicks have the same type of situation with migraines when they're missing their cycle, right? Then if they are clinically overweight or obese or have too much fat. So I feel like that middle ground is important to point out that you want to be fit and healthy, but you also don't want to lose your cycle on the other end. Exactly. If they're, if they're missing their cycles, there's something going on yeah. endocrinologically, whether it's, you know, pituitary hypothalamic or an ovarian yes. issue, it doesn't matter. All these things are things that could make it easier to have a migraine yeah. and have crappy health too. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so I want to get a little bit into, uh, we talked a little bit offline on the genetic polymorphisms and how my, migraines are kind of different the on, or the onset of migraines are different for different individuals. And that's kind of part of the reason why they're hard to treat. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. We know, we know um, that migraine is a genetic disorder, but there are so many uh, genes that are involved. Uh, at last count, I, I had, on, on, uh, there was pretty good evidence of, of over 50 genes that were involved in the migraine process and possibly over a hundred. So, you know, the idea of fixing genes with gene therapy to correct this is very unlikely to be beneficial, except for in the rare cases of familial hemiplegic migraine, and uh, it, it, which is a single gene disorder, but more, with a headache is just a minor part of the whole problem. They have a lot, of, lot more problems. Uh, but the typical migraine is there's so many genes involved that it's not surprising that people will have onset at different ages, uh, duration of it, you know, at different ages, respond to different medications. You know, for example, you know, we have you know, medications that we think are fairly migraine specific called triptans and ergots and now a whole new class called G-pants. Not every migraine patient responds to these. They'll respond to one group and not another, tolerate one another. Some will respond to none of these, but they'll respond to as little as two ibuprofen tablets if they take it early enough. You know, so there's tremendous, uh, you know, genetic polymorphism to, you know, to uh, repeat the term you use in this uh, population. And the same goes for triggers. There are no triggers that are triggers for everybody. Perhaps alcoholism is the most common one, skipping meals maybe, uh, uh, and certainly in women, hormonal changes premenstrually. Do you have treatments based on the symptoms that they're getting, like, or do you know, like what medication to go to based on certain characteristics of their symptoms? Like, how does that work in terms of choosing a medication? Uh, not really, because, you know, you know, the bottom line is, you know, migraine may have different manifestations in different patients. That's quite common. And even within the same patient, they may not, always, and not every attack may be the same. So a lot of it is trial and error. 
you know, it's an educated guess of where we're going to start. I will admit readily to my bias, and I, you know, this is already in writing, uh, in the literature, uh, that uh, I personally think we should be using the newer medications rather than the older, less expensive medicines. They're equally effective but the newer medicines have almost no side effects as opposed to the older medications. So this is not something that the academics like hearing me say. It's not something that, that the social planners like, and certainly yeah, it's not something the insurance companies like hearing me say. But these newer medications, and I'll admit, I'm biased. I did the clinical trials on all of them. These have virtually no side effects compared, I'm not going to say they have no side effects, but I'll say virtually no side effects compared to the older medications that we've used for decades. So speaking about medications, uh, you did some research on the use of Botox for migraines. Talk to us a little bit about some of that research and what kind of how that works. I'll tell you my experience with it dating back to the mid 90s. Uh, we started hearing stories from plastic surgeons and dermatologists who were using it cosmetically that their patients were saying that they had fewer migraines. Now, when we did studies on that, doing it light you know, co- with the cosmetic paradigm, uh, sure, it didn't work. It was no better than placebo. Okay, you use it, you know, numbers injecting just saline. However, as we started doing more and more uh, you know, work on it and spreading out the areas where we use the Botox and then spreading it to the sides of the head and the back of the head and even some of the neck areas, we started to you know, find some interesting things in some of the studies that were done that were good quality studies. Um, and we found a range where it seemed to work uh, in terms of dosing, which was generally 155 to 195 units. And um, also the type of patient, and that's the worst patients, the ones who we call chronic migraine. Now, it's it's a poor choice of words calling this chronic migraine because chronic usually means something that's been there for a long time. Uh, The terminology, however, that the International Headache Society has come up with is that chronic migraine uh, refers to somebody who has had more days with headache than without for three consecutive months, at least eight days per month having migraine symptoms. And the other days, it could have been other types of headaches or less, just less severe headaches. But in the people who had fewer than 15 headache days per month, the initial studies seem to show it didn't work, although there is an ongoing study right now that um, is using in that higher frequency group, like in the eight to 14 headache day per month group of at least eight of which are migraine days. So those are what we call high frequency episodic migraines. And I think, you know, we may, it may turn out that, that, that it works well in that group also, but that remains to be seen. The bottom line, the bottom line is we have good evidence it works. Now, how does it work is really interesting because we know that putting it into muscle weakens muscles, but muscles really don't play a role in migraine except secondarily. Yeah. You know, when somebody's had a really bad migraine for, for a while, you know, the neck muscles will tighten up and relaxing those helps a little bit, but that's not where it starts. You know, re- relaxing muscles is not going to uh, prevent migraines from occurring or treat them really well, very well during the attack. But we also know that the sensory nerve endings pick up Botox. And just like in the motor nerve endings where it inhibits the release of a chemical called acetylcholine, that's how it weakens muscles. When it's picked up by sensory nerves, it, nerves, it inhibits the release of other 
chemicals, including neurotransmitters and a very important neuropeptide called CGRP, calcitonin gene-related peptide. Now, a lot of the new drugs that I mentioned to you work specifically on CGRP. Botox was found accidentally to work on CGRP as well as a bunch of other things. So it just gave impetus to, you know, to, um, to looking at, at these new, newer CGRP drugs, but just like them, Botox has very few side effects, which is really nice. Other, other than uh, some, sometimes losing forehead wrinkles and making eyebrows a little bit heavy. So is that something that because uh, I, I would assume or I would guess that a medication that you have to take, I don't know if you just take it in the onset of a migraine, but the, the whereas Botox, like you take it and you're good for what, three months, six months? Yeah, like, Botox, how does that work? Is, yeah Botox is a preventive strategy and has to be given religiously every 12 weeks. Now, uh, so it's a preventive. That doesn't mean they're not going to get any headaches. They're still going to get some migraine attacks. So it's really important to treat those acute attacks also because, you know, if somebody has a, you know, an acute migraine, they're not functioning very well. They may have to miss a day of work or you know, miss, miss family or social activities. Uh, so uh, you know, every attack has to be addressed. Uh, at least that's what we'd like to do. Have you ever had a migraine, Jerome? Have I? Um, yeah. I so I remember- The answer is no, if no, you have to think about well, it. No, well, yeah. here's the thing. Let me, <laughs> let me dis disclaimer. I remember a stressful time for me where I started to get in aura, but it never developed into a headache. Yeah. And that's kind of interesting because I mentioned before, you can have a migraine without a headache mm -hmm. and uh, migraine aura without headache is a well-recognized phenomena. Uh, I also, as I mentioned, have a history of migraine and I had some occasional auras with my migraines when I was younger. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm now 76 years old since age 69. I have had no migraine headaches, but I've averaged one or two migraine auras per year. Interesting. So it's not, you know, over time, migraine changes, even within mm -hmm. the same patients. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've experienced that. I had the auras when I was younger mm -hmm. and then in my thirties, I had actual migraines and then that changed when my hormones changed a bit. Yeah. And then now heading into like perimenopause, I've had a couple yeah. You know, perimenopause is an interesting time. I used to only half jokingly say I was usually able to diagnose premenopause prior uh, yeah. before the gynecologist did, because mm -hmm. typically that'd be a time when my patients would start to get, have an increase in headaches. Yeah. And uh, I'd say probably a, a good 30 or 40% of my migraine patients who wound up needing Botox were in those premenopausal years in the yeah. early forties to mid forties, very, mm -hmm. very commonly. Yeah. That's definitely at least a good balance. You get the Botox and hey, a little bit of <laughs> side effect profile is, beautiful. you know, not so bad. <laughs> Nicole, what is that um, decrease in estrogen at that point? Perimenopause? Yeah. And I think most women, I mean, I'll speak for myself and just what I know for, you know, my age bracket of friends and client base, you can. A female can feel when that happens. Most of us can. Yeah. Um, you know what's changing because it's not just the headaches. There's obviously a thousand other symptoms that go yeah. along with perimenopause heading into menopause. Um, cycle itself changes. Your hunger exactly. levels change. There's so many sleep starts to change. So it makes sense based on what you're saying that Absolutely. a migraine again, would occur. You said the most important word there, change. Yeah. The migraine brain hates change. Yeah. Okay, hates change in hormones, it's change in the weather, change in stress levels, change in diet, 
or, you know, yeah. change in sleep patterns, any of these things that get disrupted can make it easier to have a migraine. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because that aura thing for me was and it wasn't anything that I ever got checked out. I was kind of like, I don't know if I should get it checked out, but it was kind of just something where I was under high stress and I was getting very little sleep at the time. And my caffeine consumption was extremely high at the time. So those three changes, I think, were and one day I'm just sitting in, in my office at work and I'm like, I'm like, do you, do you guys see that? And there's like something <laughs> in my vision. It's like when you stare into a light and then you, you, go, go you blink, you blink afterwards and that light is still in your vision. So it was about like an hour of that. And then, you know, it just went away. Never turned into a headache, though. Yeah, and you may not, it may not be followed by a headache. Like I said, headache is only one of the features of migraine. It's the most disabling feature of migraine in most cases, but you can have a migraine without a headache. I was just going to ask, you brought up caffeine. I have yeah. had migraines where caffeine, if I have caffeine, it helps, or at least I think it does. Now I'm yeah. suspicious of my claims. Um, and then I've also had times where I've had a migraine because I think I'm drinking too much caffeine. So I'm wondering what the role caffeine plays. Yeah, it is kind of interesting. And I, I usually try to discourage people from using caffeine containing medications for that reason. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to overuse, but they do work. You know, having, I have had many patients who tell, who, who told me, you know, when they could catch it really early enough, just one cup of coffee is yeah. enough to abort yeah. a, an attack. On the other hand, if you drink too much coffee, then you, what's happening is you're withdrawing from the caffeine very commonly. Yeah. Okay, that caffeine yeah. receptors have been overstimulated, very similar to what you see with medication overuse headache. Mm. Okay. Now, mm -hmm. what's interesting is we know that caffeine uh, stimulates uh, the uh, adenosine receptors, particularly the A1 receptor, which is which is very you know probably involved to some extent in the migraine process. It might explain why mi migraines sometimes respond to uh, small doses of caffeine, and there are some studies going on uh, with uh, drugs that target the adenosine A1 A1 receptor. Uh, and it's just very early data. So I, I'd rather not get into it too much since mm -hmm. especially since I did not participate in those studies yet. No, okay. will I at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so, but at that point, just to kind of, I guess, like a brief overview, are you, are they drugs that block that kind of sit in the adenosine receptor and block adenosine from going into the receptor? Well, not necessarily block it. You know, what might be interesting is whether it makes more sense to block the receptor or to stimulate the receptor. Okay. Right. Uh, yeah. I, I think, I, you know, I, I love to see evidence that doing it in one direction really works. It yeah. wouldn't surprise me if doing it both ways works. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It may, it may be more of a balance of stabilizing stimulation versus inhibition. Uh, again, I'm, I'm just speculating there and I may, I may, may be proven to be way off base with that. <laughs> but it is a good idea to avoid combination drugs. Uh, including over-the-counter drugs that have caffeine in them, is mm -hmm. you know, and particularly don't use them more than once a week. You know, at, yeah. the, at the most, if you're using more, you really got to use a more specific medication that's not going to cause medication overuse headache. You mentioned alcohol too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what's going on with alcohol that? seems to typically trigger an episode. I mean, I feel like there's a lot to unravel there. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Alcohol is probably the, the alcohol and skipping meals are probably the two most common dietary triggers for migraine. The amount of alcohol, the type of alcohol can be ter tremendously different. 
and not every patient is affected by it. I, I remember about, it had to be more than 10 years ago, I was out with a bunch of my colleagues at an American Headache Society meeting in Los Angeles, and we were at a, a really nice restaurant, and one of, the, one of my colleagues said, you know, I'm starting to get a migraine, and he orders a beer. <laughs> I said, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> He said, you're not going to believe it, but if I have a beer, I don't drink the whole thing. I have maybe a half of, you know, half of a bottle of beer. It often can abort the attack. I said, I wouldn't touch red wine or champagne because I know for me, those are the things that do it. Yeah. But if I have a beer, it sometimes helps. Now, I, I, you know, personal, again, this is where there, there's so much genetic difference from patient to patient. That was a trigger for one person might actually be beneficial for another person. Mm -hmm. And yeah. but why is alcohol a trigger? The answer is we don't really know. And it's certainly not a trigger for everybody. Uh, like I said, there's an occasional patient who says if they have a beer, they get better. It's interesting. You talked we talked about inflammation, right? Uh, and one of the things that one of the areas that I've studied was alcohol on, on the effects of the gut and the immune response from that, right? Mm -hmm. And increasing intestinal permeability and mm -hmm. allowing things in that shouldn't get in and then increasing inflammation through that. And I'm curious if, and this is probably something that, I, that we don't know, we're like just scratch the surface with the gut, but I'm curious if there's a link there with increased intestinal permeability and potentially inflammation and all that stuff. It certainly is possible. And I suspect there's a subset of patients where that's true. Just like there's a subset of patients who are gluten sensitive. You know, mm -hmm. it's a small subset, not, you know, not, you know, if you're, if, if, if you, if you look at social media to think that everybody should never have anything with gluten, if they got migraine, <laughs> but it's really a tiny number. It's the ones who have true celiac disease and maybe, maybe a few others, but that, that's, that, that may be the problem there is the inflammation that it causes from, uh, from too much intestinal permeability, maybe. Again, I, I'm going to keep saying maybe because so much of this, we're just scratching the surface on. Of course, as, as always, we don't like to speak in absolutes <laughs> really about anything because in yeah. five or 10 years, we can be wrong about everything. Oh, absolutely. You know, I mean, we, we see we see this all the time. Well, you talk about change that the migraine brain hates change. So if you're someone that drinks alcohol and that changes the way your digestive system works and then it makes you not sleep at night, it sounds like those layers of change yeah. that build up can create that. And well, then the other is true. Maybe someone has yeah. a beer and it puts them to sleep or helps them sleep. So that's what I find very interesting when it comes to nutrition and exercise is how it affects people differently. So this just kind of, for me, extends that, that theory or mindset yeah. that everybody has a different response to things. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I like to use the example of a patient of mine who I saw quite a few years ago. It was a woman in her late thirties who was a very successful attorney uh, who had a really, really stressful week at work. Okay. She had, she was on trial um, Friday morning, you know, she won the case. She uh, realized she hadn't been eating well all week. She hadn't, she hadn't been sleeping well all week. Uh, she gets back to the office. They decide with a bunch of her colleagues that they're going to go out and celebrate winning, winning the case. Plus she's about to menstruate also. And, um, they go to a bar. She has three glasses of wine. She learned a long time ago that she's going to drink red wine. She better stop at a half a glass. Okay. So she's of the, the stress level is now plummeted. Her estrogen levels are now plummeting it because she's about to menstruate. Stress levels are way down. And 
She hasn't eaten. She hasn't been exercising all week. Um, she was a setup. Saturday morning, what does she wake up with? A quote, a hangover. Throbbing headache with nausea, vomiting, sensitivity to light and noise, and can't move her head. There's a migraine triggered by alcohol as well as a bunch of other uh, yeah. changes. So you don't want to stack triggers. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Uh, we talked a little bit about, you kind of mentioned this and brushed over it, uh, catching a migraine early. And Nicole, offline, you brought that up. Um, yeah. So what are some of the things that we find that help people with catching that migraine early? Well, I think the most important one I, with auras, it's pretty easy. Okay. Because the, once they learn to recognize an aura, they'll never forget it. Uh, the tougher one is the ones is learning to recognize prodromal or premonitory symptoms like the urges for food, yeah. uh, like the yawning. I mean, I didn't for years, I used to yawn excessively for hours before I would get a migraine before, you know, I, I, I just read about this maybe 20 years ago for the first time. And, and you know, these, these premonitory you know, symptoms are the best warning. On the other hand, a lot of people don't get auras and don't get premonitory symptoms. So the, the first thing I usually uh, tell my patients, and I learned this from one of my patients, actually, when she said to me, you know, Dr. Turner, I finally figured it out. You keep saying treat early, treat early, treat early. And I finally figured out the best thing for me is as soon as I say to myself, I'm not sure it's a migraine, that's when I need to treat it. Yes. Okay. Uh, of course, if you could treat it when it's still mild, all the medicines work better. Some yeah. of them will still work if you take it, take it later on. But if, if you could treat early, it's always better. That's why that whole lifestyle factor situation you just described about that attorney, if you can minimize that, I right. think that's a big step too. But there are people who can't minimize it. You yeah. know, I, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I could use myself as an example. When I was a resident, you know, I would work for 36 hours straight. Yeah. Okay. And then go and sleep for as much as I could and then go back <laughs> to work eight hours later. Yeah. You know, it's uh, it, it, some some people cannot avoid that kind of lifestyle, especially yeah. professionals and especially business people. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're trying to build your own business, you're working all the time. Yep. Yeah, well, we we're, we're, we're over here with uh, <laughs> Eat Right Nutrition. Um, the. It's interesting because it sounds like a lot of what you're talking about is mitigating some of the lifestyle factors. And Nicole, you and I would have conversations about primary foods versus secondary yeah. foods. Right. And, mm -hmm. you know, your your stress levels and your sleep and your relationships and your career and all the things that you're mentioning. Yeah. Some of them are controllable. And like you said, if and some of them aren't, if you're building your business yeah. or building your career or in school and studying, whatever the case may be, sometimes those primary foods are hard to change, but the secondary foods that we choose and the lifestyle around the things we can't control, those have to, or at least this is what we really try and support our clients with, really try and keep those as a much of a priority as possible so that even if you do start to get a migraine or do start to feel like things are off kilter, you can somewhat make it less of an impact on your body. Yeah, that's really important. You know, there's some things we can control and some things we can't control. Yeah. So we have to work on the things that we do have control over. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not easy to get patients, you know, to get patients to, uh, yes. you know, to follow through with this. You know, it's, it, it's really easy to just reach for that glass of wine, you know, when you, yes. when you come home and, uh, 
you know, I, I get it. You know, people, people, people are stressed out and they, they need to be able to wind down and that does help them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a saying when it comes to lifestyle change, Nicole, John Berardi from Precision Nutrition used to say yeah. that research shows that getting somebody to make one lifestyle change um, is, is very difficult. And he compares it to getting somebody to take a lifetime, a life saving medication. And what he said was the research supports that only about 30% of people will take that life life saving medication uh, on a continuous basis. That's very common. You know, and we see that a lot with the, that, you know, non-compliance with recommendations or non-adherence, which is the, mm -hmm. the, the, the politically correct term now, um, <laughs> is, um, you know, is a big problem, you know, yeah. and most of the time it's because of side effects, actually. You know, it's not because the patient doesn't want to do it. They just hate the side effects of the medications. Yeah. So, it, you know, it, again, I like to always uh, stress to my younger colleagues, talk to your patients. Don't, don't assume that, you know, that everything that you tell them to do, they're going to do that. And if they don't do it, there's a reason usually right. why they're not doing it. And the most common reason is they don't like the side effects of medication because you never know if somebody's going to have a side effect until they have them. Mm -hmm. I think it's difficult to, in today's world of medicine, to have that conversation when we've got insurance in the way and billing. You bet. And yeah. you, bet. you know, it, it's, it's funny because, you know, I, I think, Duran, you know that I was in, ran a big headache center in private practice for many years. And my partners and I, when we got older, we decided to join a big multi-specialty group just because we got tired of the business of, of, you know, running. And then that multi-specialty group got taken over by a big conglomerate, uh, one of these national organizations, and they changed everything. They wanted every, every patient to be seen in 15 minutes. They, even a new patient, they would only allow 30 minutes, whereas I always had 45 minutes to an hour with a new, with a new patient. Yeah. Uh, and um, it's not good, and, but this is the way it is. Everybody has become a commodity. I'm a commodity, you're a commodity, the patients are commodities, our staff are all commodities. Yeah. Uh, and um, un unfortunately, it's also reality, uh, which is why I retired. I never thought I'd retire. I just retired four months ago. <laughs> well, congrats on the retirement. I know, joy. <laughs> Yeah, it's just a, a different level of care, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's a it's a, just a different way of doing things that has really be, become much less personal. Yeah. It's, yeah. Well, Nicole, that's where we try to come in. That's exactly. I was. You took the words right out of my mouth. I'm like, and we're trying to bridge the gap and help. You know. Yeah, I mean, and that help is needed. So I want to get into, and we've talked offline, and I feel like I after our conversation that we had offline, I kind of already know the answer to this, but so that we can dive into potentially somebody that might be misinformed by Googling any supplements or diets for migraines. Um, can we talk about whether or not there are any supplements, over-the-counter supplements or dietary strategies that would be kind of like a, a helpful or a one size fits all or something like that. Yeah. Well, as far as supplements today, the, the, yeah, there's this very poor evidence base there. The one um, supplement is riboflavin, vitamin B2 that does have 
level A evidence of efficacy as a migraine preventive medication. So that's almost like a freebie. You know, I, I, patients say, should I take vitamins? Should I take, I say, say, yeah, go, you know, take 400 milligrams of vitamin B2 every day. And, and it does have some efficacy. Beyond that, there's not a lot of really good data. You know, there, there, there's, there's some data for magnesium, but I often found that, you know, oral magnesium, even with the, the, um, the preparations, I said not to cause a lot of cramps and diarrhea. So it's just, just like another, uh, you know, prescription medication that uh, has a lot of side effects, but it does sometimes work. And I would certainly use it in my pregnant patients who felt that they needed something. Um, but other than that, there's not a lot. Now, is there a diet? There's no real migraine diet. Uh, you know, no matter what you read on social media or yeah, there's the most important thing is don't skip meals, keep alcohol to a minimum. Now, skipping meals is the biggest dietary trigger and add uh, alcohol to it. You know, the three martini lunch is probably not a great idea for <laughs> my, a migraine patient. And not skipping meals. I can definitely speak to not just for myself, but for many of my female clients that is just in practice. I have experienced women that under eat mm-hmm. or that are not getting enough nutrient density in their, in their diet yeah. in general, that definitely, I mean, that also makes our cycle much more, what is the word like aggressive in terms of the ups and downs or the, the highs and lows of like right before your period, if you're hungry and you don't feed the things that you're craving, I do see that a lot of my female clients yeah. will end up having more migraines than if they're like, I'm craving carbs, but they're afraid to eat carbs. I'm like, eat the damn carbs. You'll feel better. <laughs> your body will be less stressed getting through your cycle. Yeah. And the migraine, typically we find that it doesn't occur. You know, even though there's not a lot of good data on it, you know, experience-wise, several of my colleagues have often, you know, made claims that a hypoglycemic type of diet is really beneficial in migraine patients. In other words, small, multiple small feedings throughout the day because, you know, when your blood sugar starts yeah. to drop that, even in the lower normal range, you, you, your liver starts to break down glycogen to make up for that low glucose and others stuff, particularly certain amines get released into the bloodstream that also might be pro-inflammatory or or at least pro-migraine. So I I think it's probably a a valid um, type of diet for some migraine patients. But I just, most of my patients I found just can't eat five meals a day. You know, they're just too too darn busy. Either either you're running running around trying to build a career or a business or even raising kids. You know, they're just yeah. running around like lunatics all the time. You know, it's That's interesting. It's so entertaining. That's why people think I'm nuts <laughs> because I love seeing migraine patients, but uh, I hear the best stories. <laughs> it's interesting. Some, some people might t- talk about inflammation and diet and say, okay, mm-hmm. well, uh, refined seed oils. That's a huge topic with nutrition right now is people mm-hmm. talking about refined seed oils and increasing inflammation. My, my stance on that is it's always... When you look at the research, context is everything, right? If you eat a lot of these things, you have an imbalance between omega-3, omega-6 fatty acids. And then that's where you may have issues because you're just eating yeah. too many processed foods. Uh, so I would be curious if there was a link between eating a high amount of processed foods and a low amount of whole foods and potentially the risk for migraines. Yeah, I'm not aware of any really good data on that. A lot of anecdotes. Uh, personally, if people ask me, what should, what should I avoid in diet or what should I put into my, well, I'm number one, I avoid alcohol uh, if you can. 
Uh, and omega-3 fatty acids might be beneficial because of the anti-inflammatory effect that they, that they have. Uh, so if people specifically ask me about those things, I would encourage them to, you know, to at least try that because it's so harmless and it might be beneficial. Yeah. I mean, from an yeah. overall health standpoint, what do you, yeah. you're just having them better their, their diet and anyway. So, yeah. uh, and then the last thing that I wanted to talk about is we also talked about that migraines may serve a purpose. So well, what are your thoughts? What, well, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, the real question is, you know, we know it's a genetic disorder and many genetic disorders that are bad eventually just kind of, you know, they don't get, you know, carried on from generation to generation. They gradually disappear. But there are some, you know, really nasty genetic disorders like take sickle cell anemia, for example. Why is sickle cell anemia? Why was it neo never just eliminated? Well, of course, it has a genetic advantage also in that people who have the sickle cell gene are resistant to certain types of malaria. Now, could migraine, which is a polygenic disorder, uh, have something similar? And I was once interviewed, uh, you know, in a setting so somewhat similar to this, except I was with, with two neurophysiologists who are a lot smarter than me. And we were all speculating. And I said, well, you know, it's possible that the hypersensitivity and hypervigilance that migraine patients have, because we're so sensitive to things changing, that that might be a genetically advantageous thing, even though it's not great to get migraines. But for example, uh, many migraine patients are super sensitive to odors. It may even trigger their migraines in, in, in some cases. Uh, others are sensitive to change and weather changes. I used to joke that I could predict the weather better than the guy on Channel 2 News. But there might be a genetic advantage to this. You know, for example, if you could smell that saber-toothed tiger coming around the corner of the cave before people who don't have migraine or smell a fire that is just starting before people who are non-migraineurs, um, you know, could smell it or feel that thunderstorm or that hurricane coming uh, way before people who don't have migraine. Maybe that's the genetic advantage to it. Maybe that's why it hasn't been eliminated, you know, from our genome. So I have a superpower, you're basically saying. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we, we may have some kind of weird you know, sensory. Uh, and what's interesting, a lot of this hypervigilance or, or, or lower sensory threshold might mm -hmm. also correlate with CGRP levels, which is so important in the migraine process. All cool stuff. See, I told you, Daron, I'm a superhero. Yeah, I mean, you can tell me whatever you want. I, won't be <laughs> I just like well, the way that I like the thought process behind that. I mean, I know it's, I'm, I'm obviously joking, but in some way, I used to think I had a physician once tell me that it was a way for me to it was a warning sign that something was trying to tell me to slow down when I was when I knew I felt a migraine coming on or I got one. She used to say, this is your warning, Nicole, like you need to like take a vacation day, take a couple of days off. Maybe you've been working too hard. Maybe you're not paying attention to your sleep. Um, and she kind of put it that way. That definitely helped me personally just take a deeper look into what I was maybe not paying attention to in terms of my lifestyle choices. Yeah. You know, I think that's, you know, look, we need those lifestyle changes in addition to medication. Okay. And you know, medication alone, you know, I, I for example, had, um, you know, have had people come to me and say, 
well, if you give me this medication as a preventive, then I won't have to take any attack. I say, no, that's not the way it works. It's an all of the above type of a situation. We need you on a preventive because you're having a lot of migraines. We need you on an attack medication for when you do get an attack though, because the preventive medicine is not a cure. Yeah. And you need exactly. to change your lifestyle. Yeah. Okay. You need to do the things that, you know, um, your mother told you to do and you never did. <laughs> I mean, I think overall, that's a great message too. just with yeah. any anything. Right. Because there's not going to be a downside to you making lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. That's correct. You know, and even people think that it might affect their job uh, when if they if, you know, they just got to do it, you know, uh, and I see this most with, with other professionals that uh, they uh, they're, they're so focused on their careers or people who are building a business are so focused on their careers that they inadvertently, without realizing it, increase all of their migraine triggers. So they keep stacking them up one on top of another. And the migraine brain does not like that. Yeah. The one thing I say is that that people really don't understand that I've gotten through to some clients, some you know clients that are like CFOs, CEOs, things like that, that you're actually doing yourself a disservice in not changing your habits, because when you change your lifestyle in a positive way, you get more sleep, you reduce stress, you eat better, you actually function better and you make better use of your time. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Absolutely. If you don't, if you don't miss six hours because you have a migraine, you're being much more, uh, you're much more productive. Uh, or some people, they'll miss two or three days. It's amazing how when people uh, think of how much time is lost because of inability to function with due to migraine, it's saying somebody who only has three or four attacks a, week, a month. Okay. I don't see too many people who have that few, you know, but, but there are people who only have three or four a month, but that's three or four days where they're not functioning. Yeah. You know, either they're missing work or missing fam or they're showing up. That's what we call as opposed to absenteeism. That's what we refer to as presenteeism. <laughs> okay. Where people show up for work, but they're not functioning. And oh, it's even I'm hard done. to measure the economic impact of something like that. Yeah. Uh, but, it, but it's a real thing. Uh, I, you know, I've had, I had days in the office when I was younger, where patients would look at me and say, Hey doc, you don't look so good. You look worse than me. And it, it was true. You know, uh, that migraine can have, people know that you are not functioning well. And, uh, that's, that, that's, that's presenteeism as opposed to absenteeism. All good stuff. Migraines from a, I guess I'll say a medical standpoint and a lifestyle standpoint as well, which I is a relief for me to see that in your practice, you, you kind of focus on a, a, almost like a, I don't like to use the word holistic because I feel like it sounds a little woo woo, yeah. but you know, kind of like a all inclusive approach, I would say, which is awesome. And uh, Ira, I really appreciate you coming on and, and yeah. talking to us today about this. I, I appreciate you inviting me. You know, you know, I just love talking about this. All you have to do is push the button and I start going. <laughs> yeah. And and one of the greatest things that we love here is when people love talking about yeah. what they do. Uh, it definitely comes out to our audience. No, thank you. This is a lot of fun. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week. 